My name is Giovanni and this is Social Medicine, my weekly therapy session wherein we delve deep into the issues that are on my mind. This week we will be discussing relationships. I know there is a very broad issue to tackle, but I figured going at it from multiple angles would be the only way to do this complex topic justice. There are obviously many kinds of relationships and I want to touch on as many as I can. Ultimately, I would like to help myself and others understand the answer to the questions, why do relationships make us happy and more importantly, how do they make us happy? Now, in order for me to discuss this, I'm going to have to go over some examples of bad relationships and to a larger extent, the dynamics that are born out of inter-relationship trauma. Much as I gave you all a fair warning of the explicit language last episode, consider this your warning for some of the subject matter we will be discussing. The human experience is that of building and maintaining relationships, whether at home, at school, or at work. It is imperative that we make friends and, in more rare instances, find love. My personal opinion is as to what the meaning of life is, is finding happiness, which is not only facilitated by building relationships, but it's a requirement. Think about your happiest memories. Seldom are they memories you made on your lonesome. The same goes for our saddest and most painful memories. Our experiences and the relationships we find ourselves in, I would argue, are the most critical aspect of our development as people. They make us who we are, whether we realize it or not. I can assuredly say that there are experiences in my life that have helped me make me who I am, for better or worse, without my knowing. I understand that the most stubborn of us will try challenging this notion and argue that relationships are not as important a component of our life as so many of us like to think. I'd like to take this opportunity to explore this topic. I'll explore the good, the bad, and the personal. Every dynamic that can occur in our relationships and how they can shape our personality. This is going to be a particularly personal episode, having the applicable relationship in mind when talking about specific dynamics and experiences. As always, I'll be starting this discussion with my personal stakes in the topic. Regular listeners of the program know that my original inspiration for this podcast was the happiness that genuine conversations with my friends brought me. I may be quoted as saying that this is my favorite part of life, talking to people about things they love and care about. I guess that my love and appreciation of this could be attributed to the original absence of this in my life. Now, you won't hear me complain about my childhood or family at large. I was raised by very hardworking and loving parents. They truly are perfect examples of the best parts of Mexican culture with almost none of the worst parts. I say almost because unfortunately, as the youngest of three children and being eight years younger than my closest sibling, I felt an intense sense of emotional isolation at home. My dad was always busy at working and my mom was busy raising her kids as well as other people's. They gave me all the attention that they could afford to give me and made every sacrifice they could to be there for me. My siblings were simply too old to really care about me. I mostly spent my days playing with my toys, creating original storylines of good and evil, and playing video games. These would become important parts of my life, not just my childhood. I'm currently taking my love of creating stories to the next level and writing my first novel. And my love of video games has never died down. In fact, it was through playing video games that I learned to love and appreciate watching movies and television shows and the stories and characters they provided. Luckily, I very quickly found someone to share my love of video games and stories with, my best childhood friend, Jason. Jason was one of the handful of people I would refer to as an actual friend of mine. I went to his house almost every day after school and we would play the GameCube games I would never have the chance of playing at home as a PlayStation 2 owner. Luigi's Mansion, Mario Party 4, Super Smash Bros. Melee, Super Mario Sunshine, Kirby Air Ride, etc. We would play with his toys and even create our own serialized television show. Every day was a new episode. Jason was my best friend. Unfortunately, we would be attending different middle schools, which led to our breaking apart. I have only spoken to him once after that, and I have never gone over not continuing our friendship to adulthood. I've built some really great and close friendships in middle school, high school, and college, but Jason was my first real friend, and the only best friend I ever had, at least until I met my current one. I always prided myself on having a good sense of humor and an innate ability of making others laugh. Despite this, ever since elementary school, I've felt an emotional emptiness that I would credit as having single-handedly shaped what I think and how I think. A large part of this void was 
fulfilled is I met and developed a relationship with Lizeth, my girlfriend and the love of my life. When I met her, I had reached a point in my life where it became too much of a hassle to, to hide how I really felt on the inside. It, talking to her made me happy. It's as simple as that. My reason for looking forward to school went from being about potentially having a positive interaction with someone to knowing I was going to have one with her. It got to a point where I couldn't stop thinking about her. Not like she was always actively on my mind, but she was always there, you know? Even when I wasn't thinking about her, I was thinking about her. More than four years later and not a day has gone by where I didn't feel loved and appreciated by her. This was the relationship I was searching for. And the funny thing is that she found me. Now, there are a lot of things about me that needed fixing. I'm still working on some of them. But the progress I have made and continue to make daily is thanks to her. Her support has been instrumental in my development and I cannot thank her enough for making me happy and more importantly, teaching me how to be happy with myself. She loves me enough to not just tell me but actually show me where I went wrong and when I am wrong. This is how I learned to be happy with her and myself, changing for the better. I like to think that I've done the same for her. Although I will always love her for showing me a love that before I met her didn't think was possible, a void that is either partially or mostly filled still leaves a void. Smaller, but a void nonetheless. There's only so much that a single person can do. I still missed out on those close friendships during my adolescence and still into my young adulthood. Platonic best friendships like the one I had with Jason. I regret a lot of the choices I made in this regard. I can understand and appreciate that this is a part of life. With time, everything dies, including relationships. So for me, the exploration of how and why relationships make us happy will help me deal with this looming sense of regret that has followed me all my life. In preparation for this discussion of regret, I watched a lot of TED Talks and interviews with famous psychologists and read articles pertaining to the subject. Regret is something that I carry with me for even the smallest of problems for weeks and months to come. But the biggest regrets I have had, the ones regarding my achieving a specific happiness in life, have only piled on top of each other, eating at that void I mentioned earlier. Listen to social psychologist and best-selling author Daniel Gilbert answer the question of why we feel regret. Well, you know, there's, there's two kinds of decisions that you can make in regret. The kind that you regret because they didn't turn out as you thought, and the kind you regret because they turned out precisely as you knew they would. And for psychologists, it's really the second kind that's the most mysterious. So you make a financial investment and you think you're going to earn money, but you don't. Of course you regret it, but who knows the future? The more interesting regrets we have are the kinds of regrets we experience when we have an extramarital affair, or we eat too much chocolate cake, or we fail to save for retirement, we don't clean our teeth. We do all sorts of things that any rational person, if you ask them, would say, well, yeah, I know I'm gonna regret this later. Why do we do now things that we know for sure our future selves will regret? I think that's one of the great mysteries of human behavior. And that is one of the great mysteries. And what sort of insights have you come to when it comes to un trying to understand that? You know, you have to understand that the human brain was not designed for the world in which we currently live. Our brain evolved over a long period of time for a very different world than the one we live in. It's beautifully optimized to do things like find mates and find food and live in very small groups. It's very poorly designed for a complex world like the modern world in which we live. And so it's not much of a mystery that the brain has tendencies that suited us very well in the past, but not in the present. One of those is a strong emphasis on now and a neglect of later. You know, uh, 5,000 years ago, you didn't have to worry very much about your retirement because your life was likely to last about 20 years. You didn't have to think much about the future because there probably wasn't one and the present was so pressing and dangerous. Today, it's a very different story, but we're still you know, navigating the ocean with the ancient vessel that evolved in, in uh, prehistoric times. That second kind of decision that leads to regret, 
that Gilbert describes is particularly important to understanding the folly of human existence. Only the most motivated of us, who often become the most successful, can tap into our ability to look ahead and use our imagination to determine our decisions, while the rest of us seem to focus on the now, with our past as our primary motivator. This is actually something that I notice goes against the most common advice given when it comes to decision making. A lot of the people would sooner tell you to live in the now than to think about the future. I tend to see value in both schools of thought, but collectively we should have greater foresight than we have shown. A lot of the world problems we are facing and that our children will face could have been overcome with a little bit of foresight, among other things. But I digress. The regret we feel from personal decisions we make has three components, according to Cooper Vardy. Well, there's three key ingredients to regret, first of which is agency. You had the ability to decide what you did. If you walked out that door a few minutes earlier, you could have seen your father on his deathbed. Second, we have the imagination to think of what could have been. If I had just paid the extra $20 for a cab, I could have said goodbye. And finally, we have the pessimism to imagine we'd be in a better place. I wouldn't be oh so hollow if I had. Understanding each of these three aspects and our control over them is what fuels our regret. I'm sure a lot of you can relate when I say that knowing that I had the agency to do something different or having the imagination and pessimism to create an image in my head of what could have been is a painful reminder of the uniquely human capabilities Daniel Gilbert was describing. I think it's important to understand this most of all and to not feel ashamed of feeling regret. It is a very human thing and regretting a choice you made in the past, big or small, is not something you should try to hide but something that you should learn from. That's the first step to dealing with regret. Taking it upon yourself to learn from your mistakes is something that is taught as children, but the same should be extended to our regrets. Regrets aren't always social, as mistakes are. Mistakes are generally defined by societal rules and norms, while regrets come from our own set of values. So learning to take these regrets and learning from them is key to overcoming them. In my example, I have learned through my regrets of losing friendships and not building enough relationships to focus on building fewer, more meaningful relationships. By doing this, I have shifted my center of motivation from my past regrets to my future desires. I know more about what I want out of life and the relationships I have developed. Something that Jordan Peterson said really stuck with me because of how true I found it to be in my life. Is that you know fair, one? do you think, to say, I don't, I don't, I want to be single forever? Do you think that's realistic or fair assessment of oneself? Um, I think that that's, for most people, a pathway to insanity. Yeah. You know, the psychoanalysts used to think that, and we all think this way in some ways, that you're sane because you're well put together. In Your psyche is well structured, right? It's internal, somehow inside your head. Mm. But, and there's some truth in that, but here's a, here's a more accurate viewpoint, I think. You outsource most of your sanity, because it's too complicated. And so what you do is your parents raise you to be vaguely acceptable to other people. <laughs> and then you're surrounded by other people your whole life. And then every time you go off the rails a little bit, even just a little bit, people signal to you. Like you make a joke, it's not that funny, and people don't <laughs> laugh. And you think, oh, well, you know, I should probably rethink my sense of humor a little bit or pay more attention. Or mm. you tell a rambling story and you notice that everyone's like <laughs> lost in the distance. And right. So if you're civilized enough so that people don't shun you and you have people around you, then they're going to be always telling you how to not be too insane. Mm. Well, if you're alone, you drift. Right. You drift. Right, right. You know, and you'll drift in the direction of your biggest weakness. Mm. And so, you know, there are some people, maybe they're introverted and disagreeable. They're, they're not cut out for a lot of social contact. But we're social animals, man, right to the core. Sure. And, and 
it's a suboptimal solution for, for the vast majority of people. Like most people, I have learned to watch out for a lot of the social cues that humans give off and conversing with them. This has single-handedly helped me deal with a lot of the anxiety I feel when in specific social situations. Before I really understood the value of building healthy relationships, I found myself ignoring these cues, which led to me being passed off as no one of substance or no one of note, the class clown, which of course in turn resulted in me drifting into my biggest weakness, feeling regret for what could have been. In a romantic relationship, regret can either be the downfall or the catalyst of a healthy relationship. Feeling regret is a natural part of being in a relationship, but learning from the regret must come from within. If you say something or do something bad to your significant other and you don't regret it, then there is something inherently wrong with you. Your lack of empathy may point to other psychological issues of sociopathic, which does not bode well for anyone you are in a relationship with and can result in imbalanced power dynamics in a relationship, more of which we'll get to later. If you do regret it, then it is your responsibility to understand why you do and how you can do and be better. Luzeth is a wonderful partner and someone I constantly learn from and who is eager to learn from me. Our regrets are expressed and handled. I'm not going to credit her as being the sole reason for the successes in my personal development because I must acknowledge my willingness to change and the part I play to do so. But she has certainly been an incredible partner in this in every regard. The regrets you feel in your relationship and where they originate from are enough to tell you the direction of the relationship and what to do to ensure happiness for the both of you. I often think about my past and even present relationships in a constructive manner. Doing so has allowed me to truly understand the person that I am and the one I'm friends with. Ultimately, I want to really urge the importance of both wisdom and communication in our relationships with ourselves and with others, and the importance of turning our regret into lessons. I practice what I'm preaching and can assure myself that I am the healthiest and happiest I've ever been. This comes in many shapes and sizes and takes a different form depending on the relationship and the individuals in said relationships. But for me, the foundation of happiness is function. What I mean is that in order to be happy, you must first be able to function adequately in all scenarios. It goes with the basic human need of survival. We can't survive if we can't function and adapt to the situation we find ourselves in. This also goes with building relationships. You and your significant other will never find happiness together if you aren't willing to find common ground to listen and to change. Regret plays an important role in our function, being the biggest test of our function. As I stated before, regret differs from mistakes as both a product of the latter and an internal problem, a personal problem. How we act to feeling regret tells us how we, how well we function in society and vice versa. An example of people showing a handle of regret can be seen in Daniel Gilbert's TED Talk titled The Surprising Science of Happiness, in which he describes the potency of what he calls synthetic happiness. We synthesize happiness, but we think happiness is a thing to be found. Now, you don't need me to tell you, give you too many examples of people synthesizing happiness, I suspect, though I'm going to show you some experimental evidence. You don't have to look very far for evidence. I, as a challenge to myself, since I say this once in a while in lectures, I took a copy of the New York Times and tried to find some instances of people synthesizing happiness. And here are three guys synthesizing happiness. I'm so much better off physically, financially, emotionally, in almost every other way, mentally, almost every other way. I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. I believe it turned out for the best. Who are these characters who are so damn happy? Well, the first one is Jim Wright. Some of you are old enough to remember. He was the chairman of the House of Representatives. And uh, he resigned in disgrace when this young Republican named Newt Gingrich found out about a shady book deal he had done. He lost everything. Most powerful Democrat in the country lost everything. He lost his money, lost his power. What does he have to say all these years later about it? I am so much better off physically, financially, mentally, in almost every other way. What other way would there be to be better off? Vegetably, minerally, animally? <laughs> He's pretty much covered in there. 
Maurice Bickham is somebody you've never heard of. Maurice Bickham uttered these words. Upon being released, he was 78 years old. He'd spent 37 years in Louisiana State Penitentiary for a crime he didn't commit. He was ultimately exonerated at the age of 78 through DNA evidence. And what did he have to say about his experience? I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. Glorious! This guy is not saying, well, you know, there's some nice guys. They had a gym. It's glorious, a word we usually reserve for something like a religious experience. Harrius Langerman uttered these words, and he's somebody you might have known but didn't, because in 1949, he read a little article in the paper about a hamburger stand owned by these two brothers named McDonald's, and he thought, that's a really neat idea, so he went to find them. They said, we'd give you a franchise on this for 3,000 bucks. Harry went back to New York, asked his brother, who was an investment banker, to loan him the $3,000, and his brother's immortal words were, you idiot, nobody eats hamburgers. He wouldn't lend him the money, and of course, six months later, Ray Kroc had exactly the same idea. It turns out people do eat hamburgers, and Ray Kroc, for a while, became the richest man in America. Oh, and then finally, you know, the best of all possible worlds, some of you recognize this young photo of Pete Best, who was the original drummer for the Beatles, until they, you know, kind of like sent him out on an errand and snuck away and picked up Ringo on a tour. Well, in 1994, when Pete Best was interviewed, yes, he's still a drummer, yes, he's a studio musician, he had this to say, I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. Okay, there's something important to be learned from these people, and it is the secret of happiness. Here it is, finally, to be revealed. First, accrue wealth, power, and prestige, then lose it. <laughs> Second, spend as much of your life in prison as you possibly can. Third, make somebody else really, really rich. And finally, never, ever join the Beatles. I would like to point out that every example of synthetic happiness given to us by Gilbert just now dealt with a person's relationship. Their relationship to a potential business partner, to their brother, to the criminal justice system, to the world's most popular band and its legions of fans. All of them, most of us would classify as negative or unhealthy relationships and experiences, but we wouldn't know it from what was said about them. For a much clearer definition of, of synthetic happiness and how it compares to natural happiness, here is Daniel Gilbert defining both. Because when people synthesize happiness, as these gentlemen seem to have done, we all smile at them, but we kind of roll our eyes and say, yeah, right, you never really wanted the job. Oh, yeah, right, she, you really didn't have that much in common with her, and you figured that out just about the time she threw the engagement ring in your face. We smirk because we believe that synthetic happiness is not of the same quality as what we might call natural happiness. What are these terms? Natural happiness is what we get when we get what we wanted, and synthetic happiness is what we make when we don't get what we wanted. And in our society, we have a strong belief that synthetic happiness is of an inferior kind. Synthesis of happiness is as real happiness as natural happiness, and is our main tool to combat feelings of regret. It is a survival tool and an awfully useful one, and one that is best utilized when in social situations. The most socially adept of us reach this level of adeptness because of their knowledge and understanding of society and the social interactions they find themselves in. Can you imagine if we weren't capable of synthesizing happiness? We would let even the most minute inconveniences affect us severely. Social relationships really provide us with both synthetic and natural happiness that most other things are incapable of doing. And it all, of course, starts with us and how we can, how much value and time we put into developing these relationships. Well, I think the first thing anybody who wants to improve their happiness should think about is relationships with family and friends. And I only say this because we know it's the single best predictor of a human being's happiness. If you have good relationships with family, many and good relationships with friends, 
it's going to be a lot harder for you to be unhappy. And yet most of us neglect our social relationships while we try to earn money. Money really makes people happy when it moves them from poverty into the middle class. Big, big effects of making poor people safe and secure, giving them three meals a day. But once you have the basics that money can buy, more money does very, very little. And if you're spending your time chasing extra dollars, instead of investing in social relationships, you're not making a very good investment in your own happiness. Why do relationships make us happy? Why do psychologists like Daniel Gilbert agree that our main source of happiness are our social relationships? Well, I've learned that it stems from our very nature. It goes with what I've been trying to say about survival. Our world is a different world than that of our ancestors and as are the problems we face in our definition of survival. Whereas survival for them took the more literal definition of life and death, for us it's a far more social answer. But understanding that our ancestors ensured survival through cooperation is what can help us understand the importance of social relationships to our happiness today. There's strength and security in numbers that negates a lot of the stress and anxiety we would have felt if placed in a situation all by ourselves. I can speak from experience that diving into a new experience with at least one person I know is infinitely better for my sanity than doing it alone. Now it may seem fair to say that the deeper the relationship, the happier you will be, but as we will see in the next section, that is not always the case. An example of a relationship that is thought to be to bring happiness is the relationship between parent and child. But according to the Institute for Family Studies, quote, an enduring finding of the social science literature is that parents are less happy than childless adults, at least in America. A recent analysis of data from 22 countries by sociologist Jennifer Glass and her colleagues shows that America has the largest parental happiness gap. The study also provides the most authoritative explanation to date of why parenthood makes people unhappy by exploiting national variation in public support for parenting, including differences in paid parenting leave, legally mandated vacation or sick days, and workplace flexibility. These factors account for the relationship between happiness and parenthood. To put it another way, work-family conflict can explain why parents are less happy than childless adults. There is nothing intrinsic to parenthood that makes people less happy, and nothing intrinsic to parenthood that makes people any happier for that matter. Needless to say, most parents would say otherwise. Although willing to acknowledge the hardships of parenthood, they're generally quick to tout its rewards. Now this of course says a lot about American public support, or the lack thereof, but also shines a light on a relationship that generally makes us unhappy. It of course is mostly because of outside factors, but in no other relationship than in the parental one are these factors expected to exist, which points to the difficult nature of the relationship, and of course it's difficult. You're raising and caring for a whole ass human being. Now I'm not here to convince you all to not have kids, I just wanted to show an example of a relationship in which happiness is hard to come by, and one that isn't necessarily a bad or unhealthy one. So why do strong and healthy relationships make us happy? Well, it all has to do with emotional responsiveness. Our ability to communicate explicitly and implicitly through social cues. Through these forms of communication, we begin to deepen a bond, one that provides us with an emotional and social security blanket. Not to mention that these relationships often lead us to you know, lead physically healthier lives, which answers the question as to how relationships make us happy. But even when all this is the case, why do we continue to build and stay in unhealthy relationships? One of the most emotionally hurtful things one can do to a significant other is cheat on them. Now that word may mean something different to me than it does to you, but whatever any of you may think constitutes cheating, it will always revolve around this basic idea of breaking the trust you build with a significant other to be with someone else. When cheating, we forgo the happiness of our significant other in exchange of revitalizing our own sense of happiness even a bit. Listen to relationship therapist Esther Perel explain this. But then we have another paradox that we're dealing with these days. Because of this romantic ideal, 
We are relying on our partner's fidelity in a, with a unique fervor, but we also have never been more inclined to stray, and not because we have new desires today, but because we live in an era where we feel that we are entitled to pursue our desires, because this is the culture where I deserve to be happy. And if we used to divorce because we were unhappy, today we divorce because we could be happier. This goes well with Gilbert's idea that some of our regrets are those that stem from expected outcomes. We ignore our own predictions in favor of indulging in our present desires. In other words, cheaters allow their primal desires, which aren't necessarily sexual, to take over. What I mean is that a lot of cheaters don't do it as a way to sneak in a quick fuck or for the thrill of it. A lot of times these people view cheating as a product of their fight or flight sensibilities. This can be viewed in two ways. One, someone in an unhealthy relationship who, instead of fighting it and attempting to recuperate the love they had with their significant other, they flee into the arms of a lover. Or two, someone in a happy and healthy relationship deals with personal struggles and a longing to find themselves, and instead of fighting their urge and expressing it to their significant other, they flee to the arms of a lover and choose to express their longing through infidelity. Affairs are an act of betrayal, and they are also an expression of longing and loss. At the heart of an affair, you will often find a longing and a yearning for an emotional connection, for novelty, for freedom, for autonomy, for sexual intensity, a wish to recapture lost parts of ourselves, or an attempt to bring back vitality in the face of loss and tragedy. Wanting to feel alive, I think, is something that we all go through at some point in our lives. It's completely natural, but we must not allow our own selfish desires to ruin the lives of others. Do not damage them psychologically to the point where they do not feel that they can love again, yet they have been betrayed beyond mending. We must be aware of our autonomy at all times and be responsible enough to utilize it in meaningful ways that further our own well-being and that of those we have built relationships with. Love can be betrayed in more than ways than one, however with the most extreme example taking the shape of abusive relationships. I have learned that there are two main factors that lead to an environment conducive to repeated instances of domestic abuse, the critical inner voice and the fantasy bond. The former is a destructive thought process that we all, to some extent, go through. It is, as the name denotes, a psychological instance of the weaponization of our biggest insecurities. You're bad at this, nobody loves you, you're a failure, etc. And it's something that abusers in abusive relationships might be experiencing in their daily lives. The latter, the fantasy bond, is a hollow replacement for a deep and loving relationship that often occurs as a result of the fear of being alone. It's when people are in a relationship in name only, but very rarely show each other affection how we typically would. Abusive relationships can take different forms, namely as physical or emotional abuse, both of which have different symptoms and lead to different experiences for both the abuser and the victim, but can come from similar origins, an imbalance of power in our relationship dynamics. An understanding of the origins of abusive relationships doubly serves as an understanding as to why people choose to stay in these dysfunctional relationships. I want to play a clip from yet another TED Talk I watched by psychologist Signe Hegestand over abusive relationships. It's a little long, but I think the story she tells does a great job of laying out the history of abusive relationships in a victim's life. Take a listen. So, you may ask, how on earth could a person ever have misinterpreted this kind of relationship for love? How could they ever have come to the conclusion that they were not worthy of love and should be grateful for this kind of abuse? In my opinion, the attachment style theory offers the best explanation. And let me explain by telling you a story. 
It's the story about a little girl who grew up in an ordinary family with a father, mother, and a brother. They lived in a nice area, in a nice house, and the parents were well-educated. But it's also a story about a mother who was mentally ill and who got admitted several times throughout the little girl's childhood. She suffered from anxiety, depressions, and later it turned out that she had personality disorders. So, the father was the primary caretaker in periods. He was ambitious, worked a lot, and he took care of the children's physical needs. But emotionally, he was incompetent. At times, he would demean and ridicule his children for showing emotions or not being good enough. So, the little girl grew up with a mix of admiration and anxiety towards her father. When the girl was five years old, the mother was in a very bad traffic accident, and she got hospitalized. The little girl, she was afraid that it was not just an accident, and she couldn't shake the thought that she might have done it on purpose. So when the father shortly after decided to get a divorce, the little girl could not leave her mother, and she stayed with her. So. At the age of five, this little girl was already overly responsible, willing to set aside her own needs, blaming herself for her parents' bad mood. Sometimes the parents showed her affection and told her that they loved her. But for this girl, love was uncertain, and she grew up with a feeling of being unworthy of love, wrong and ugly. Attachment style theory says that this little girl will very likely repeat this pattern in her adult relationship, setting her own needs aside, blaming herself for her partner's bad mood, and feeling grateful for any kind of love, even if it comes with abuse. Because love is uncertain, and for this girl, it becomes a repeatedly pattern. But on the other hand, we see children that are securely attached. They will grow up being independent and confident adults with high self-esteem and the ability to create a loving and caring relationship. This story serves as an explanation of the attachment style theory of psychology. In this theory, children mainly seek to maintain a close proximity with sensitive and responsive attachment figures, someone like their parents whom they can use as a secure base to return to after exploring socially. And with the story told by Dr. Hegestan in mind, children with anxious or avoidant attachments may, as the name suggests, feel anxious when met with warmth and care from typical relationships and may want to avoid commitment and intimacy. Domestic abusers are actively taking a role in the ugly cycle of abuse that is being allowed to exist in perpetuity. That is not to excuse the behavior of abusers, although it must be acknowledged that they too are victims of the system, or to place blame on the victims of emotional and physical abuse for their perceived enabling of their abuser's action. So how do we end this cycle of abuse? It's very obvious that the relationships I've been touting as being the most important factor in our happiness have also brought immense sorrow and trauma and depression. But we need to understand that it is up to us as a society, as a culture, to set forth the new standard of relationships. Healthy relationships must be the norm. I know, I know. That's an incredibly obvious and unnecessary thing to say. 
but is it? It's one of those things that we all know is right, but very rarely act on. I mean, if it was that obvious, why do unhealthy relationships still exist? Why do violent and manipulative and dysfunctional relationships exist? Look around at all the trauma we have normalized, all the pain and suffering we allow to happen because that's just how it is. Don't believe me? I'll give you some examples. There's the culturally ingrained idea found in Mexico known as machismo where, where the man must fit into a certain type of masculinity, which in turn results in expected subservience from the wife, uber-violent behavior, bigoted views towards those who are perceived as not fitting the mold of normalcy, i.e. homophobia, transphobia, colorism. America, of course, has its own flavor of this very thing. Then we got the expectation of children to fit in certain gender roles, most of which are only damaging and promote the perpetual cycle of abuse. And of course, we can't forget the glorification of mental illness, particularly our culture's fascination and normalization of having depression and anxiety, which relates to our egotism and need to be the center of attention. Then we got racial stereotypes that result in the institutionalization of racism. The list goes on and on. Now, I know these examples are from the lens of a Mexican-American with very little life experience, but I can name all these things that I know exist in my community. Imagine what other traumatic experiences someone else from a different background can come up with. These are all things that we don't even bat an eye about because it's ingrained in our head that it is normal. And even when we realize that they exist and that they are bad, we feel that there is nothing that we can do about it. We're in too deep. That works for those who are enacting this trauma because they get to keep doing it, keep getting away with it. But there are, of course, things that we all can do to stop this. Something as small as correcting your dad whenever he says something homophobic or racist can have profound personal effects on those present and can begin to ripple to others. For all you social media naysayers, you have to admit that this is one good thing that has come from the social media age we live in. A lot more of these injustices are being brought to light, and whatever ounce of justice can be enacted is. I know that this may promote our reactionary mob mentality and our need to cancel people with no due process, which is a topic I will get to later on this season, I promise. But the good cannot be ignored. I know it took months for Ahmaud Arbery's murderers to be charged, and I know that this should have happened way sooner. And I know that no justice can be brought, but the idea that something like this could have and would have been swept under the rug if that video wasn't recorded and posted to social media is one that would have been a reality if it weren't for the age we live in. We must be active agents in our lives, taking responsibility for our regrets, building mutually happy and healthy relationships, and calling out when we witness and experience unhappy and abusive ones. We all want to be happy, but not all of us want to work for it. Instead of letting my regrets control me, I've learned to control my regrets, to use them as motivation to do better, to use retrospection and introspection as a tool for my personal betterment. Our society needs to build healthy relationships with ourselves and others. Otherwise, the nasty cycle continues. If you or anyone you know is a victim of emotional, verbal, or physical abuse, please reach out for help. Everyone's situation is different, so help looks different for everyone. For some, it's the authorities, and for others, it's an out-of-state family member or a friend. We should all strive to be in healthy relationships. That goes without saying. But we also have the responsibility to show the world what that means so that unhealthy relationships perish in the face of happiness. I know, it sounds very idealistic, very corny, but... How else are we to end the cycle of abuse without promoting healthy relationships and the happiness and security that they bring us? That's going to be it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show and appreciate the time and effort I put into researching, writing, recording, and editing it, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialmedicine. There's only one tier, a dollar a month, and that's for anyone who enjoys the show and wants to help build it. I sincerely appreciate anyone who's made it this far. Please let me know what you thought about this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a beautiful day. Remember to stay safe and stay sane. Goodbye.